Welcome back to The Horse Race, your weekly look at politics, policy, and polling here in Massachusetts. I'm Jennifer Smith, here with Steve Cazella and Stephanie Murray on the first pod of the new Biden administration, because we're recording here on Thursday, January 21st, the day after Joe Biden was inaugurated as the 46th president of the United States. And we're not really going to chat about that today. Uh, Just wanted to mention it up top because we're actually going to be focusing on something Closer to home, but still on the national level, because Stephanie, some stuff is going on at MassDOT. Yes, there is, Jen. Uh, President Biden just keeps taking people from Massachusetts government. So we are going to talk all about Transportation Secretary Stephanie Pollack, who is going to serve as Deputy Administrator of the Federal Highway Administration. Uh, She leaves behind a complex legacy, and we will talk all about it. Super interesting. Lots to discuss. That's right, Stephanie. We have the executive director of Transit Matters, Jared Johnson, here for the first segment. And then for the second segment, we have Massing Polling Group director Rich Parr to talk about a survey we conducted in the state's gateway cities about how residents have been getting around during the pandemic and looking ahead a little bit to to what transportation choices are going to look like in the future. Obviously, there's a lot up in the air, a lot of kind of moving parts trying to figure out, you know, what the transportation system even should look like. And now with the departure of longtime transportation secretary Stephanie Pollack, those questions become even more pertinent and even more timely. That's right. We'll have plenty of lukewarm takes on uh, the new Biden administration and what exactly it means for the Massachusetts delegation in future episodes. But we hope you enjoy this kind of special deep dive into transportation in Massachusetts. So y'all ready to get on that train? I'm trying to think of a transportation thing to say in response. (laughs) I want off this train. I want off this ride. My gosh. (laughs) It's a crazy train. (laughs) Whatever that metaphor is, let's let's make this happen. All right, let's go. Stephanie Pollack will end her six-year run as transportation secretary for Governor Baker's administration this week. The news of her coming departure has prompted a range of responses, including both praise and criticism of Pollack's job performance. Jared Johnson, executive director of Transit Matters, called Pollock one of the smartest and most talented transportation advocates this Commonwealth has ever seen, but was also critical of the legacy she leaves behind. He joins us now in the horse race to talk more about his reaction. Jared, thank you so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. So in addition to your praise of Pollock, you you also wrote that she has left our transit system in crisis with avoidable cuts, frustrated years of productive work on Alston I-90, given cover to plans to shrink the T and focus on electric vehicles and shut down productive conversations on road pricing. So on balance, how do you see your legacy? Yeah, you know, I I, I don't think it will be a good one, right? I, I mean, you know, I mean, and, and this is not to minimize, there have definitely been great, you know, great things that that uh, the secretary has done. And, you know, I definitely don't, you know, don't want to minimize the, you know, the the, um, the state of the team's finances uh, when she first came in. And of course, and I, I just missed it. So don't, don't hate me, but, you know, I just missed the awful, um, you know, winter 2015 uh, snowstorm and, 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 and the, the havoc that that wrecked on the system. However, However, I think, you know, with, you know, with sort of great, um, you know, to, to paraphrase Spider-Man, you know, with, with great sort of knowledge and skill comes great expectations. And I think the expectation was not that she would just get the T to a level set with its budget and help fix some of the, um, the longstanding issues, uh, but that she would really be transformative and that she would be, you know, a fighter 
Um, and I, I, you know, I, th- th- I didn't, I didn't see that um, in, in, in a lot of the decisions, you know, right. Like, you know, l- low income fares, which I know would be something that, um, you know, if she were on the advocacy side, she would be pushing the T on and, and maybe even, you know, uh, threatening legal action to get them to, to, you know, speed up that process. And yet, um, from the secretary's chair, there was always some reason why we couldn't do it. And that and that that was unfortunately, that to me will be the legacy that she leaves behind is being in that secretary chair and um, sometimes openly, you know, feuding and openly pushing back on the board and and being the one with the reasons why it couldn't be done. So, of course, Jared, you mentioned you weren't here in 2015. I, of course, am still thawing out from that winter. But kind of putting yourself back in that mind frame of of watching her come in as the new secretary, take us a little bit through a how it started slash how it's going. What were your hopes when she started at, at the post? And then did she actually accomplish the goals that you might have had on your priority list seeing her come in? Yeah, I know. I mean, I, th- I think that... Um, I think that people remember her being a, a you know a tireless advocate, um, you know, to make sure that the T uh, and Mastoff fulfilled their big dig obligations. Uh, as you know, as far as transit, um, that they um, you know uh, fulfilled their air quality regulations. And so I thought I think that people thought that you know when she came in, she was going to take sort of that that advocate and that sort of activist take and sort of bring that into into government. Um, and I think that um, you know while while the, you know. Well, you know, she did hold, hold briefings with advocates. You know, it was definitely not. Um, it was definitely not the relationship between advocates and the organization that, that I think they they thought. You know, when 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 they had one of their own in there, right? You know that um, that you know the only reason that that um, you know bus riders uh, coming in from the North Shore are going to have an easier ride um, is because her old employer, you know threatened legal action, you know, and, and they, they went to the courts for that. Um, and so that's, you know, that's certainly not the situation we thought, you know, we, we would be in, right. You know, that, that, um, you know, something like um, transforming the commuter rail um, and, and, um, you know, making that, making that mode zero, zero emissions and, 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 you know, making it more affordable to low income people, you know, all of those things, that would have been something that, um, but the secretary, you know, in her old job would have been all over. Uh, and yet, you know, it was like pulling teeth to get that over the finish line. Uh, and then even still to this day, we still don't have a whole lot uh, of, of progress uh, on that. And so, yeah, so I, I definitely think that there were, um, yeah, that the expectations were certainly not met. And I, like I said, again, I think ultimately, I think that, that, that people thought that, again, that they would be getting an advocate um, and a and someone who took that activist spirit inside of government, and instead, you know, I think the relationship a lot of advocates have with Mastod is is you know is often pretty tense. So who's to blame for that? I mean, is it Pollock not living up to an advocate role, or is there just not a lot of room in the Baker administration to uh, do the job that way? Yeah, you know, this is a tough one, right? Because I, I you know, trying to you know, as, as much as one can sort of uh, interpret someone's, um, um, you know, motives, you know, I mean, I, I think there was probably a sense of, okay, well, you know, yes, we know this person's a Republican and we know that, that um, you know, that they, you know, sort of have a, you know, 
sort of a, a you know fiscal conservative kind of mindset, uh, but you know maybe I can come in there and I can I can sort of you know push and whatever else. And so I think you know definitely understand that frame of mind. But I think you know reflecting, and this is what I somewhat of what I tweeted that that I don't think that works when someone has very strong convictions. Um, to the contrary to what you believe. And so I think, I think, yeah, so I think, you know, some of the, the blame is, is there is that, is that, you know, you've really got to think through your theory of change when you're interacting against that. And then of course, yeah, I think that ultimately a big part of it is, is, is the Baker administration is, is the governor um, and is the governor just really uh, pushing back on things that might cost money and might require him to raise taxes, which is odd because there's, there's doesn't seem to be that same, um, level of pause or caution when it comes to raising fares, you know, but yeah, I think there are some hard barriers that any secretary, no matter how, you know, talented we're going to come up against uh, because of the, uh, because of just the, the, the political mindset of this administration. You mentioned something which was familiar to a lot of the advocates that we've worked with over the years in terms of what seemed to be Secretary Pollock's response to things, which was that that idea you have is too hard. That one's too expensive. That one's too complex. That one, there's some technical reason why it can't be done. There was always a posture of that can't be done, almost no matter what the what the kind of big and systemic change was. Um, but the MBTA, I thought, was sort of the strangest case of all, where there was this posture that there was always a deficit, even when there wasn't a deficit. It was always austerity rather than like thinking of what should be next. So what what should have been happening over the last number of years? What should Boston have been doing? I guess we can think pre-pandemic since no one could have foreseen what was going to happen now. But what should the T have been up to for these past years? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Uh, sort of th- thinking thinking back to, um, you know, I caught just the sort of the tail end and, and heard a lot about, you know, the the end of the Patrick administration. There was a lot of, of, of idea generation and sort of thinking into the future. And, you know, not all of them were, fully baked, but, but, you know, still there was something positive about that. And I think, you know, for as much as, as the administration, you know, likes to, you know, likes to, to, to push, you know, being forward thinking and being sort of competitive across the world, when you look at what other, you know, cities and other regions across the world are doing, they're investing in transportation, um, in mass transit specifically, you know, they are tackling congestion, you know, using, um, you know, um, bold and progressive um, road pricing strategies. And so I, I think that's what, it, that's what the administration should have been doing. They should have been building on that, you know, they should have been building on the, the efforts that were happening at the end of the Patrick administration. And, you know, I know that, that the T's finances and everything else weren't in the best place. But, you know, I think that's, that's the chat, right? If, if you bill yourself as Mr. Fix-It, then you should be able to walk and chew gum at the same time. You know, we should be tightening up the, the um, you know, you know, t- tightening up some of the, the, the unnecessary, you know, spending and some of the, the, the bad sort of fiscal practices that were happening before and getting the organization into a tip top shape, you know, flexing that, that, um, you know, flexing that 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 procurement and that and that project management muscle and, and really building that to get more, um, you know, get more spending out of the door. Uh, but then that also should have been um, that also should have been used to 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 further those projects um, that are going to help us be competitive, that are going to help us get to a um, you know help us get to a, a better environment and a more equitable economy. And you know, I think you know going back to what you were saying earlier about. Um, you know, always a deficit when there when there wasn't one, and this sort of austerity mindset. I think, you know, there's this theory that I've kind of had in the back of my mind, and it's really starting to come to fruition when you look at 
the, uh, the governor's decarbonization um, road, roadmap, um, very appropriately named, because that's what it focuses on. It focuses on roads, um, and, and it looks as though um, that, that they envision a smaller T. Uh, and, you know, it just so happens that the pandemic provides the perfect opportunity for that. That's the perfect opportunity to shrink the size of the T uh, and to make it less relevant. And, you know, I think that's going to be a self-fulfilling prophecy uh, if, if there's not a strong pushback um, with this new secretary. And I mean, I know it feels like the pandemic has been 17 years long, but two pretty recent debacles over at MassDOT at the T do immediately kind of come to mind right pre-pandemic, one of them, of course, being the red line derailment and the sort of ripple effects that came out from that one. And then, of course, you've got the RMV in the room, which is, of course, there was this complete fiasco when there was a fatal motorcycle accident that revealed that the state hadn't been keeping up with alerts about unsafe drivers from other states. And um, now Baker has said that he has appointed Jamie Tesler, who's the current head of the RMV, to be acting secretary at MassDOT. So I'd kind of like your take on two things. One is, how do you feel that MassDOT and the T dealt with those two kind of big fiascos? And what's your hope now for Tesla going forward, um, at least in the interim? Yeah, you know, I, I definitely can speak more to the red line derailment than the, um, than the issue of the registrar and at the RMV, but, uh, but certainly on the, um, you know, certainly on the derailment, I think a lot of us were really pleased that, um, you know, that they did go ahead and release that safety report, that they did, you know, bring in outside um, outside experts um, to really look at that. And I think it revealed that, um, you know, that, that there's still a huge backlog. And it also just revealed that, that we really need to be thinking about um, all of the trade-offs when it comes to, you know, getting new vehicles and when it comes to, into, you know, to, to really getting new, new vehicles in there faster. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I, I think on balance, I think the T did a good job of trying to respond to that. And my understanding, uh, you know, um, uh, you know, of the RMV situation is that, uh, is that, you know, Tesla has done a good job there. And so I think coming in, you know, I, I, I think the hope is that, um, is that he tries to strike a better relationship with, with advocates and, you know, he's going to face the same, some of the same constraints and pressures that the, the secretary did. But I think that, that, that you know, obviously secretaries serve at the pleasure of the governor, but, you know, I definitely have a fun, fundamental disagreement with how the secretary, you know, in her own words, would explain her role—that she was a client for the governor. And it's like I—I I don't think that that's the role of a secretary. That's that's what he has a, a lawyer for. Um, you know, your goal should be, you know, to to push for the best transportation policies. And obviously, you know, at the end of the day, the governor has the final say on those. But I think you should be bringing you should be bringing to the governor the concerns of advocates and be, and be trying to figure out, okay, within our framework, how does this work? Um, and less so, I am just sort of telegraphing to you what the governor wants. And I am using my, you know, knowledge to just sort of, you know, to just sort of, you know, dress up whatever's coming out of the administration. Um, so I, I hope that, that, you know, acting secretary Tesla uh, comes at it with a different approach. Where do you think that transit should be headed in the next few years. I mean, we're in, I think, 
for a lot of reasons, kind of like a growth or transition period um, with the tea and with everything else. Um, it seems like more people are buying cars because of the pandemic. Um, there are cuts. What vision should there be kind of like a zoomed out vision moving forward after COVID is over? I think we should be shaping the future. I think that's been a big frustration of mine with um, with the secretary and, and with MassDOT and the T, you know, um, sort of as we've been in the middle of the pandemic is just sort of throwing up their hands and just sort of saying, well, sort of this is the way it is. And I don't, I don't think that's true. Um, you, you shape the future that you want. Um, and, you know, we, you know, there, when, you, when you look at, at places like um, New Zealand uh, or some of the, the um, East Asian nations that are, um, you know, really, you know, recovering from the pandemic or have essentially recovered, you can see some of the trends that allow you to look into the future you know, that traffic jams do come back um, and that people do go back to transit, you know, once the virus is, is under control. And so when we think about the priorities that this own administration has, you know, around housing development, um, you know, around, you know, economic development and, and regional equity um, and, and, and racial equity, you know, having more folks on transportation, on public transportation is a key part of that. Um, you know, we can we can put folks into electric vehicles, and yes, that will help us uh, decarbonize to a certain extent. But that's not going to help with with housing, right? That all of those people in those electric vehicles are going to need parking spaces, and the more parking spaces we build, the less affordable that housing is, the less space we have for it. That electric vehicles, particularly if we build more of them, they still operate on roads, um, and you know those aren't very green, neither in their in their construction or in in um, in, in the makeup of the roads themselves. And so, you know, I think where I would like to see transportation going is, is like I said, to, to shape the future. We know that we need more walkable communities because that's, that's where the demand is. And that's why we are in such a big uh, housing crisis. We know that we need, um, you know, we know that we need to tackle highway congestion. And, you know, that's, we're already seeing signs of that, you know, coming back, you know, we're already seeing signs of that in, you know, in some periods, uh, it's already 80, 95% of where it was. So all of those things we know we need to tackle. And we know that getting folks onto public transportation, we know that folk, getting folks into shared vehicles, getting folks into onto to bikes and, and walking more, uh, you know, is going to be a key, a key part of that. And so, like I said, that's really where I would like to see us going is, is that, you know, you can either look back and sort of you know, take a passive approach. And yeah, like you said, people are buying cars. But again, I think, you know, yes, some of them are buying cars, you know, because of the, the fear of the pandemic. Others are buying cars because the bus got cut and now they're looking at the news and the T is saying, well, we don't know when we're going to bring this this back. And so they're, so that's why they're buying a car. You know, um, the, the you know, they, they live in Worcester uh, or somewhere along the Worcester line. And, you know, that, that service has been, has been, you know, drastically reduced. Uh, and they, you know, I don't know, maybe they have a life and would like to do something on the weekends. Um, the Baker administration seems to think that people living outside of Boston just are immobile on the weekends. But yes, I think that's, you know, that that's why some of those things are happening. And yes, we're seeing more people buy cars, but I don't think that that it is true that that half of the Boston region has just decided to go get a car now. Um, you know, there's still a lot of people who depend on public transportation um, and, and, and who would like to see that be expanded and honestly would like to see us to have even more service than we did before the pandemic. All right. Well, we've got to leave it there. Jared Johnson, Executive Director of Transit Matters. Thank you so much for joining us today. 
Thanks again for having me. A new survey from the Mass Inc. polling group asked residents of gateway cities in Massachusetts about their transportation habits before and during the pandemic. So how are they getting around? Do they feel safe in the transportation options that they've chosen? And what improvements would they like to see in public transit? Uh, to answer these questions, Mass Inc. polling group research director and titan of transportation, Rich Parr, has these and more. And he joins us today on the horse race. Rich, good to see you again. Good to see you. All right, let's talk polling. Who did you poll? So this was a survey of um, 1,262 residents of the Gateway Cities in Massachusetts. Just to, to refresh people's memories, the Gateway Cities are, you know, traditionally it's been like older mill towns, kind of post-industrial type of areas. You're talking about Lawrence's, Holyoke, Haverhill, Lowell. Um, it's been expanded out now to include places like Brockton and Chelsea and Lynn, Everett. Um, we included, I should say, an oversample within this of just Everett, uh, because we had um, one of the funders on the project was is working on a project in Everett and particularly wanted to to study that as well. So um, we we got a bunch of respondents from there. Then we kind of mashed that down to make everybody proportional by by population. Uh, we did this in sort of the fall of um, uh, 2020, and uh, it was it was uh, sponsored by the Bar Foundation as most of our transportation polling is. So what, you know, is the top line? What questions did you get answered and what's happening with transit right now? I think the top line is that COVID is, you can really see in these results, the effect that the COVID and being afraid of, of getting COVID has on transit ridership. I will say that most people survey told us that they were drivers before the pandemic and they continue to be drivers. But when you ask folks uh, questions like, are you comfortable riding transit for the people who are currently riding? Most of them are a little cautious, are a little, a little um, nervous about riding transit, even though they're they're doing it. Uh, people who are riding it more tend to be a little bit less so. They sort of made their peace with it. Um, but when you ask folks, what would you rather be doing than than you're doing now? The people who told us that they'd rather be riding a bus or a train or subway, overwhelmingly the top reason that they're not doing that, the top obstacle that they cited was they were afraid of getting COVID. You know, people are telling us that they're seeing things like uh, other riders not wearing masks on the system. 40% of the people who are currently riding during the during the pandemic are telling us seen that. The people who are riding most often, 54% of them are saying that they're they're seeing that. Similarly, uh, there's um, you know 40% were telling us that the buses and trains are too crowded. They can't get the social distance that they need on some of these uh, on, on, on when they're on the vehicles. So, you know, there, there's some reason for them to be concerned into this. It's not everybody who's reporting it, but a good number of people are. Um, and you know, and that raises some questions about just how are we going to get people to, to to be comfortable riding these these systems again? Again, a lot of these gateway cities are not in the MBTA service area. MBTA, you know. That's the bulk of the transit ridership in, in the state is coming from people who are taking the T. The RTAs, unfortunately, tend to be sort of a service of um, not so much for choice riders, but maybe for people who don't have other options. Um, we see that in this survey. You know, if you look at the demographics of the people who are currently riding right now, they tend to have lower levels of income and education. They tend to be less likely to own a car. Uh, they tend to be more non-white. They tend to be less likely to be employed. So there's all of these indicators that are saying that the folks who are riding this are people who maybe really need to. Um, and there's some questions about whether the service that they're getting right now is, is you know, making them feel safe when they're on it. 
Yeah, this poll echoed in a lot of ways some of the things that we've been seeing in our other polling, which is that we're in a period of transition. We know that, but we don't really know where we're transitioning to. We know how people are feeling. We know what modes they're riding and how that's shifted. And we kind of know what they think will happen. But the thing we don't really know is, you know, what modes will be available to them when this is over, which is something Jared was talking about, that you build for the future you want. Um, we don't know how many offices will be reopened at full capacity and whether they'll require workers to go there or, you know, some portion of them will be at home for some some part of the week. We don't know whether once people feel safe, they'll remember the reasons that they liked transit, whether traffic will be as bad as it was. There's just a lot of things that, w that we really don't know yet. So there is a lot of uncertainty built into these results that's been reflected in a lot of other our other polling. Uh, but Rich, I wonder if you'd also talk for a minute about the questions in this poll about keeping transit moving ahead, that there is support for still funding transit and supporting transit, even if people are using it at lower levels at this point. Yeah, I thought this was interesting because, again, you know, uh, and we often find this in our statewide polls as well. Most of the people in this survey our drivers, they're not transit riders. But nonetheless, what when we ask people so about some policies that would be kind of progressive on transit, you know, making transit better or making transit more affordable affordable for people, we found pretty good majority support for those. So for example, you know, we have 80% of the people in this survey saying that they would support um, giving lower income residents a discount on public transportation fares and passes. Uh, we also asked about the idea of making transit free for everybody. And we also got a majority on that, but it's a little bit more, um, a little bit more divided on that. So, you know, 58% of the folks that we talked to said uh, they'd like to see transit be made free for all. But then you also have about um, about a third saying that they would not support that. So that's a little bit more, more divisive. Uh, we did a survey of all voters in the state about the state budget that came out last week. And we asked about this question of free transit, free transit or free buses. And what we found was that for the free buses concept was more popular than making all of transportation free. And I think that what, what that might be telling us is that there's a little bit of a sense of let's make it free or, or cheaper for the people who really need it. But there is some sense that somebody needs to pay for this. Some There needs to be some sort of fares going in to, to, to pay for that. The other thing that we looked at, and again, most of these gateway cities that are outside of the T, the, the transit that they have are buses, right? This is the RTAs, the regional transit authorities are providing the service. So we asked about bus rapid transit. This is the idea that you could take your bus system and by making some tweaks to how the routes run and how the buses run on the street, how people get on and off the buses, that you can make that system function a little bit more like a light rail, like the green line on, on the T or like a subway. You know, there's there are some you know, newer cities in America and around the world where they don't have the subway lines and instead that they've kind of chosen to take their bus system and make it work a little bit like that. Um, so we wanted to see if people had heard of that and then whether they would be supportive of that. And most people had no idea what bus rapid transit were, was. I mean, uh, you know, 51% said that they were not at all familiar with the concept. But when you explain it to them and then run them through some of the things that make up bus rapid transit, like you know, we're going to take the bus station and we're going to kind of enclose it and make it feel like you're at a subway and, and we'll raise it up so that you can walk straight onto the bus. People really like that idea. That was the most popular thing that we that we tested. Um, but people also just like kind of lower um, infrastructure intensive ideas like just 
running more buses, you know, just have, have the buses come more often so people can get on them. Um, have people pay on the street somehow before they get on the bus. And again, I guess if you made buses free, you wouldn't even have that issue, right? You let people get on any door, um, make the service a little more direct so that you can get on a bus and you can get where you need to go without having to do all these transfers. Um, giving buses their own lane so they're not stuck in traffic and they can, you know, get a, get a, uh, a green light when they come up to an intersection, the, the light would turn green for them. You know, these are all popular ideas, even among people who are drivers who had multiple cars, who own multiple cars in this survey, majority support for these ideas. So it, it, it's not quite, you know, just because people are afraid about using the T now or the, the or the buses in these regions or, or they're not using them now, doesn't mean that they don't support some, some changes that would make them kind of more of a viable alternative. And maybe this, maybe thinking ahead, as we're trying to think about how do you convince people to get back on, making transit a little bit more attractive might be a way to sort of help them get back onto the system. And quickly, I'd like to tap back to something that you mentioned at the start of that answer, which is about, you know, who these transit riders are, who is depending on on public transit as an option. Uh, because there is, of course, as in many things, an intersection between uh, age, often race, often income level. So when we talk about who rides transit, who are we talking about? Yeah, so if you look at the folks who are riding now during, and we define that kind of as since March, since the start of the pandemic. So, you know, if you're on a bus right now, most likely you you probably need to be, right? I mean, I think most people are, are trying to find other options or perhaps they're just not traveling as much at all because a lot of people are working from home and so on and so forth. So what we found was that they tended to be younger. Um, you know, 66% of the, the people who are riding transit right now were under the age of 45. Um, whereas, you know, 43% um, among people who aren't. So that's a pretty big gap. They're less likely to own a car. A quarter of them do not own a car, don't have access to a car. Um, nearly half of them make less than $50,000 a year um, compared to only 36% among the people who aren't riding right now. Uh, three quarters of them don't have a college degree. Uh, they're more likely to be uh, non-white. They're more likely to be African-American in particular. Um, and they were less likely to have um, a full-time job and they were less like, and, and they were more likely to have no job. They're also slightly more likely to be part-time employed. So you can think perhaps some of these folks are, you know, have a part-time job and can't afford a car or taking the bus to get to something that they need, really need to get to, maybe their job. That does, as Steve said, line up with a lot of the demographics of the people that we saw having the biggest impacts from COVID, the people who said that they've lost jobs, that they've been, someone gets sick from COVID as well. So all of these things are kind of piling on the same people in our, in our, in our society. And, um, and they're all kind of feeding into one another, you know? Um, so the fact that these people are taking a motor transportation that the bulk of them are, are not comfortable with, that they're saying there's some unsafe things going on, you know, that's a challenge that we, I think we should all really reckon with. All right, well, I think we're gonna end there transportation titan Rich Parr, also technically the Massing Polling Group Research Director. Thank you so much for being here to walk us through it. You bet. You could say that was our final stop on our special transportation episode. But, um, <laughs> You could say that, but let's you just could. choose not to. <laughs> Steve's like, where's my stop? I want to get off. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, that brings us to our favorite segment and based on our extensive audience analytics program, your favorite segment too, and that of course is horse race trivia. So Stephanie, what's our question for this week? Uh, the inaugural poet, Amanda Gorman, uh, 
was, you know, one of the most applauded parts of Biden's inauguration this week. Uh, And she actually has a Massachusetts connection. So our question is, what is it? Man, there's always a Massachusetts connection. There always is. But that is all the time we have for this week. I'm Stephanie Murray here with Jennifer Smith and Steve Cazella. Our producer is Libby Gormley. Make sure to leave us a review wherever you get your podcasts. My special request, if you're listening, take a screenshot and post it on Twitter or your Instagram story to help your friends find us. Sign up for the Politico Massachusetts Playbook if you haven't already. And of course, call the Massing Polling Group if you need any polls. We will see you next week.